In this episode, we're going to be talking about boots, EDC kit, preparing your kit for outings, bushcraft during the hunting season, alternative bow drill positions, and powerless refrigeration. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Ask Paul Kirtley. At the moment I'm in Scotland. I've been working here for the past few weeks doing various things including our River Spey canoe trips and hopefully you've seen some of the video of that adventure on my YouTube channel and on my blog already. Um, I've been up to a few other things and I'll have a few announcements and a few other uh, blog and video bits and pieces that will come out of what I've been doing up here so keep an eye out for those going forwards um, but uh, I'm just taking this opportunity I'm right at the end of this block of working up here taking the opportunity to catch up on a few Ask Paul Kirtley questions and get those out to you um, again I'm falling behind with the email so I'm going to crack through some emails on this episode and let's start with the first one without further ado this one is from David Guy and David asks um, what type of boots would you recommend for the UK. I use a pair of Mindel walking boots but I'm conscious I could be using more appropriate type of footwear, patrol boots etc. Any guidance would greatly would be greatly appreciated. Cheers David. Well good to hear from you David, hope you're doing well. Um, it's a very broad question and if you walk into an outdoor store um, in the UK or further afield, you're going to be confronted with a whole range of different walking boots. And that's not to mention more specialist stores where you might get military boots, you might get uh, trail running shoes, all of those sorts of things. There's lots of different types of footwear you can wear for the outdoors. Going back to some of my previous questions and answers about bushcraft, there is certainly no specific footwear for bushcraft. And I think ultimately you have to wear what's appropriate for the terrain, the season, the conditions that you're going to be encountering. And you also need to wear boots that are comfortable. Um, some manufacturers make boots that are a bit wider, some make them a bit narrower. They have a typical last or often last being the mold that the or the the shape that the the boot is made on and formed from um, some are thinner than others some people have got quite broad flat feet other people have got long narrow feet some people have got higher arches than others so to a certain extent you kind of have to find a brand that works for you um, but that said, there are clearly some quality brands out there. Mindel, you've already mentioned. Um, Scarpa make very good walking boots. Zambalan make good walking boots. Lower make good walking boots. Um, Brasher make good lighter weight walking boots. Um, Garmont make good mountain boots and, and walking boots. Um, and forgive me if I've forgotten any others. Um, Lundhag make good boots as well. Um, so there, there are a range of high quality boots out of there. Altberg is a, is a British manufacturer, which is well worth looking at. And um, I think you have to experiment to a certain extent, certainly try boots on and work from what you've already tried. Um, but as a general point, I, I would say 
your personal foot shape aside, and some manufacturers like Altberg, for example, can make boots that will fit your particular foot, and that's certainly worth looking into. Um, if you have a, a somewhat unusual foot shape or a foot shape that doesn't get on with some of the, the mainstream brands, certainly seek out a manufacturer that can do something a little bit more custom for you. Um, but generally, think about what you're going to be doing. Um, does the boot need to be really hard wearing? Um, does it need to be more resistant to, say, fire? Um, or does it need to be super lightweight? Um, does it need to be really water resistant? Does it need to be able to dry quickly? Um, do you want a high leg boot or a, or a lower leg boot? Some of the, or do you even just want a trail running shoe or an approach shoe? It, it depends what you're doing. Um, I think a leather hiking boot is a good general boot. The reason I'm scratching here a little bit is there are still some midges around. Even though I'm recording this towards the end of October, it's been very warm, it's mild, and there are still some midges around. We need more frost here to get rid of them. And uh, there's more midges here than there were uh, mosquitoes in Canada uh, last month. Um, so it was warm there, it's warm here. It seems to be uh, right in the Northern Hemisphere, right across um, from North America to, to, to certainly to Scotland. It's, we've had warmer weather for this time of year. So if you see me scratching around, um, it's because there's midges coming for me. Um, but generally, yeah, a, a leather walking boot is a good place to start. Mind will make very good ones. Um, if you're happy with those boots, if you find them comfortable, if they keep your feet warm and dry in the conditions that you're out, I would say they're fine. Um, generally, I quite like a high leg boot, particularly in the woods, not because I, I would sort of want to emulate some sort of uh, stormtrooper look or paraboot look. It's simply because th this is a great example of where I am at the moment. Um, and if you're listening to this on a podcast, I'm sat in the middle of a mixed uh, Scots pine, birchwood um, forest. There's some aspen in here as well. And underground, it's quite tussocky. There's lots of heather. There's, um, there's bilberries. There's cowberries. There's sphagnum moss. There's some damp spots. There's streams to cross. There's boggy sections in in the low-lying areas there's um, logs like the one I'm sitting on to step over and uh, I like to have a boot that doesn't leave a gap between my trousers and the top of the boot um, so that I have an elasticated bottom on my trousers I'm wearing Fjallraven trousers at the moment but I've got some Lundhag trousers that I like to hike in as well that I can seal over my boots and typically that then stops me getting bits like um, pine needles bits of heather which are notorious for getting stuck in your socks and other stuff other bits and pieces of the forest in the top of my boot we had a previous question about trouser twists many episodes ago I can't remember which one it's one of the earlier episodes it's a good idea to try and seal um, your trousers as long as you're not going to get too hot and sweaty. Some, some exceptions are in the summer when you might want to be wearing shorts. Um, and also you want to think about ticks. There's lots of red deer in this area. There are some ticks around as well. So having that seal is good and having a higher leg boot uh, helps do that. I've got some nice uh, Zambalan walking boots that I've had for years, um, but they're a little bit low and I get a bit irritated with them because even with the trousers with a little hook on that I can hook into laces they tend to ride up particularly if I'm stepping up rock steps in the hills or stepping over logs in the in the woods and um, so I don't wear them as much as I would like you know I bought them um, 
but I don't wear them as much as I, I would like to, um, simply because I find them, uh, I find I have a gap between my trousers and, and the boots. So I like something a bit higher. So I, I like lower military boots. They're the boots that I wear quite a lot for working and they're quite good around fires. Um, they're good in mud. You can keep them in mud for a long time. You can clean them up every day. They're pretty resilient from that perspective. Here, I've got some Lundhag boots on, um, the professional high, I think they are. Um, they're not so waterproof as you might think, but combined with a sealskin sock and a merino inner, they're super comfortable. I can, I've been wading through streams that are, you know, about this deep, about 45 centimeters deep. I haven't been getting water over the top of my boots. I haven't been getting wet feet. Inside of the boot gets a bit wet, but um, you can take the, the membrane out, which is the sock, and you can get the boots to dry quite quickly. You can get the, the socks to dry quite quickly. The inner, uh, merino is very comfortable. You don't get any abrasion between the uh, the sealskin sock and the the foot, even on longer hikes, because you get the socks moving against each other. So that's a very comfortable combination I like for wet woodlands. I wear it in wear them in northern Sweden in the autumn, um, Scotland in the autumn. I've been stalking recently with a friend of mine, and we've been traipsing around very damp woodland looking for deer. These boots are very good for that as well. Um, so I like generally like a higher leg boot. In the mountains, I like to have a boot that's got quite a soft sole, um, maybe a bit softer um, than normal. Some of the Vibram soles can be a little bit hard and on, on wet rock, then it can be quite slippery. So if you're going into the hills a lot, um, I would try and seek out something with quite a, a softer sole. So I've got some winter boots by Scarpa that will take a cramp on. They've got quite a soft rubber sole on them. And I've got some Garmon um, boots, which are much lighter weight. They're almost like a rock shoe with a, uh, with, a, with an ankle cuff on, if you like. They're that kind of design. They're really quite light. Um, they're a fabric boot, fabric and suede. Um, they do have a membrane in them, which makes them a bit sweaty, um, but they're light and they've got a very grippy sole. So I would think about exactly what you want to do. If you're going for specific things, go for a specialist boot that really suits that, those conditions. If you want a general boot, I would say a three to four season leather hiking boot with a reasonably high leg will suit you in the forest, in the hills, if you want a one-stop shop. The question then is whether or not you buy a boot with a membrane in. Personally, I'm moving towards not, um, not having membranes because I find if I look after the leather, the leather lasts a lot longer than the membranes do. The membranes start to break down and by membrane, I'm talking about a Gore-Tex or similar liner in the boot. That tends to break down where it's folded repeatedly. It starts to leak there anyway. And also they can be quite sweaty on hot days. Whereas if you buy an unlined boot that's just a leather boot, then you can choose what socks to wear with that boot. You can, if you're, if you're seal skin or similar membrane socks wear out, you can put new ones in and the leather boots will last a lot longer. Mindle are renowned for lasting a long time, for example. I know people who've, be, who've worn Mindle boots for a decade and they've worn them a lot and they last a long time. So that's a long-winded answer, but I would say general leather boot, um, reasonably high leg, that'll serve you in the mountains, in the woods, try and get one, my personal recommendation would be try and get one without a membrane and then choose the socks uh, combination which suit the conditions and the season that you're going for. You might still then need to go for a specialist winter boot if you're going into the mountains or you're going in the, into the far northern forest because it's cold or because you need to put crampons on. 
but other than that I think that will serve you very well. So it sounds to me like the ones you've already got may well suit you in lots of different conditions but um, if they're uncomfortable maybe have a chat with somebody like Altberg to see if they can make you uh, a boot that's really well fitted to your foot. They're a, a UK uh, manufacturer based in North Yorkshire and they've got a very very good reputation and they're not particularly heavy for leather boots either. So without further ado let's have a look at the next question. Thank you David. Anyway um, next one from Paul Bonner. And he says, thanks for the opportunity to tap into your expertise. I was wondering if you bother with an EDC bag, an everyday carry bag. If so, what does your kit consist of? Thanks, Paul in Canada. Well, I don't have an everyday carry bag as such, certainly not in the in sort of prepping sense, but I am outdoors a lot. And when I'm outdoors, uh, there is a core set of kit that I typically have with me. Um, you can find some things on my blog and I'll put a link in the show notes and remember the show notes are on my blog paulkirtley.co.uk there'll be a link if you're watching this on YouTube there'll be a link to my blog where you can find all of these episodes all the other information that I put out and the show notes to these shows as well. Um, I'll put a link to some of the articles I've already written so I'm not covering the same old ground um, that I've already covered but for example there's a seven items I never leave home without um, article which basically um, are items that I always consider having with me and pretty much always do have with me especially in a woodland a forest environment I will have those with me um, in a bush environment in Africa or Australia that's typically the sort of stuff that I will have with me um, in the mountains it might be a little bit different or different different versions of those things that are better suited to the uh, weight to utility ratio that is uh, justifiable for an above the tree line trip or a tree line or a trip where you're above the tree line a lot but those are the considerations you have to have a look at and also have a look at my lightening the load um, series of videos for some ideas on making sure you've still got the utility that you need from really important items but maybe reducing the weight of what you carry particularly if you're heading up some steep hills and into into uh, the mountains whether they're forested mountains or whether you're going above the tree line and dipping down into valleys and back into the hills it's good to have those things with you still um, from a day-to-day -day perspective um, I'll typically have some sort of cutting tool on me whether that's a folding pocket knife a Swiss army knife or a leatherman um, and that's just generally around and about because I'm typically doing things uh, that have some relation to my work. I may be fixing equipment, I may be opening boxes of new equipment that's arrived um, for, for the company, for Frontier Bushcraft or um, for, the, for our online store. Uh, any, any, any sort of small cutting tool that I can cut boxes with, cut paracord, cut string, um, I find that invaluable. I, I, find com I find myself feeling completely naked without at least a pocket knife on me. So I've got a pocket knife at all times or at least something with a, with a reasonable blade on it. Um, clearly you've got to stick within the law depending on where you are and what you should be carrying with you. Um, but I, I, I do that. So whether it's a non-locking folding blade or whether it's a lock blade or whether it's a belt knife, I've always got a, a blade on me of some description because that's a key tool. Um, I've typically... Uh, 
got some sort of illumination on me, a, to a small torch, whether it's a head torch or a, a keyring torch or something with me, um, I find that absolutely invaluable as well. I've normally got a whistle on me. I've normally got some means of lighting a fire. And on my keyring, I have uh, a, a means of creating sparks, whether that's for lighting uh, gas stoves or whether it's for lighting uh, fires. Um, again, I, I, I can't see why you wouldn't have something like that with you. Um, I typically have a small pocket first aid kit with me and those are the sorts of things that I have with me because I'm using those all the time. It's not something I've got squirreled away just in case. I'm using um, cutting tools, I'm using, um, I need a, a torch and I need to light fires or light stoves on a daily basis and having a first aid kit sensible, including some headache tablets and what have you. Um, I also have some spare contact lenses because I wear contact lenses. So I typically have some spare contact lenses with me and that's what I'm gonna have with me all the time. Um, wherever I am and then you know if I'm going further off the beaten track I'm going to choose my equipment appropriate, appropriately uh, for where I'm going as per you know all the different articles on my blog and videos on my blog and my YouTube channel so um, for specific environments you can go into more detail with each of those but generally that's what I'm going to have with me so thanks for the question Paul so next question is from Frank and apologies if I get your name wrong, Frank. I think it's Frank de Weijer, um, W-E-I-J-E-R. And his question is quite a long question, so I'll sort of summarize the main question. Is what, what he wants to know is, what kind of preparations you make before you are going to make a trip in the woods? I, for myself, keep two rucksacks all packed, but without food or drink ready standing on the attic. Um, he's got one for summer conditions. Um, he's got some basic kit in the car. He goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, and he said generally he would like uh, some advice uh, on how to pack things, little tricks and advice and keep up the good work. Thanks, Frank. So I think the main question is, how do I keep my kit ready for the outdoors? Um, have a look on my blog and my YouTube channel. You may have already seen various different things there, but about packing, what I pack, date, what I put in a day pack, or what you can put in a day pack for in the woods, um, how to pack general uh, bushcraft style uh, camping equipment, and um, how to pack that. There's videos and articles on that, and also some basic kit, as I referred to in the previous question. Um, also, I think it was either the last episode or the episode before, somebody asked me about how I store my kit, and that give, well, should give you some idea as to how I keep my kit. Um, my kit is in use a lot of the time, particularly um, my sort of basic core kit is in use most of the time, most of the year, um, and then from the end of the winter through to quite a way into the autumn um, I've got a fairly standard kit that's used a lot I'm out doing my own trips I'm out doing trips with customers I'm out running courses so I'm more static but I'm still camping in the woods I spend a very high proportion of the year sleeping outdoors and living outdoors so my equipment's in use a lot of the time and so when I get home it's typically um, the, the routine really is to get it cleaned up get things sharpened get things polished get things washed and reproofed and those sorts of things and get things right back up to a high standard I try and 
you know, keep everything in a good uh, level of maintenance in the field, keeping boots um, clean and polished and well-oiled, keeping sheaths um, well-oiled, keeping knives and axes sharp and all those sorts of things. But um, clearly you can give them a bit more TLC. You've got more tools and materials available at home or in a workshop than you have when you're out in the field. So I try and bring everything back up to, up to scratch when I'm at home, but that's often quite a quick turnaround. And then yes, I do put some things straight back into my rucksack, but things like my sleeping bags and things that need airing and things that are better stored um, in a larger uh, way rather than compressed, um, I leave them open. We talked about sleeping bags in a previous episode. I don't like to keep all those things compressed, ready to go, because it doesn't do them any good. And then in terms of equipment that I maybe don't use so often, like winter kit, I keep that stored in plastic storage boxes, um, well aired, uh, constant, relatively constant temperature. Th so things are not going to go moldy. Things are not going to get dusty. They're not going to get moths in them or any other issues that you might have with storing things over a long period of time. Have a look at the previous couple of episodes for um, for some advice on that and then the other thing I do which um, helps me get ready for trips is I have a, a set of drawers which um, I have um, kit that I always take so going back to the previous uh, question things that I'm always going to take with me with pretty much no exception I have in a drawer so I can just open that drawer and grab those things so if they're not already packed in a rucksack they'll be in that drawer and there'll be nowhere else so I always know where they are and I can always check that I've got them and then there are things that I often take with me but don't always take with me or in the next drawer down and then I have other things in in that stack of drawers as well um, so different different cutting tools perhaps um, for different circumstances again going back to that previous question is it a Swiss army knife is it a folding lock knife is it a folding knife that doesn't lock at the sheath knives saws those sorts of things stored there i have some first aid supplies and some other bits and pieces that i can grab uh, and, and replenish my kit so it's all all easily accessible um, and ready to go from there and then i've got a wardrobe with outdoor clothing in um, that i can that i can grab whether it's for the woods whether it's for the mountains or a combination and canoeing equipment and that sort of thing is is all easily accessible so I don't have everything packed ready to go because it depends what I'm doing, but typically everything during the summer months, spring, summer and autumn comes home, gets cleaned, gets put back ready to go again because I'm going again pretty soon. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, Frank. Thanks for the question. Next one. Um, so this is a question from Danny Barrett. Good to hear from you, Danny. Another question from Danny. Um, he asks, could you tell me, is there a more comfortable way of using the bow drill as being disabled? I find the posture I take very uncomfortable. Thanks, Danny. Um, that's a really good question and one that doesn't really get addressed um, as often as it should. And yeah, it can be really uncomfortable. Um, the, the standard bow drill position where you're kneeling and bowing and putting pressure on can be uncomfortable for a number of reasons. People with knee problems find it uncomfortable as well. People with some back problems find it uncomfortable. People who have a bit of a belly on them find it uncomfortable to hunch over that way. Let's, let's just be frank about this. So yeah, um, on your own, there aren't many different options. I've seen a few people adopt um, a method where they're bowing more across themselves because they have shoulder problems. Um, I saw one guy who managed to sort of kneel on a um, on a, a hearthboard and bow across himself, but that took some time 
to develop. So I don't know specifically what it is that's uncomfortable for you, Danny, whether it's just that leg up, knee down position that could be and hunching over could be unstable and, and uncomfortable you could try just kneeling and bowing across but you don't get the strength from your shoulder that's the issue um if you're working with other people and let's be let's be frank danny and, and anybody else that's listening um we teach people to do bow drill on their own but un unless you're stranded a long way away on your own um that you're never going to have to use it on your own um, so think about the likelihood of that happening you know people get very very focused i must learn bow drill on my own and it's a nice thing to be able to do it's like you know being a, being able to do a backflip um, off a table is a is a fun thing to be able to do but it's not something that everybody needs to be able to do and um, the question is do you need to be able to do that or are you likely to be with somebody else and if so maybe practice with somebody else you know if you look at some of the the sets that are in museums from native peoples having used um, bow drill sets um, one of the other methods as well as having a bow one of the other methods was to have a thong a, a rawhide thong that went around with a toggle on each end um, and that absolutely requires two people because one person would would use the thong like this but then somebody else would be pushing down um, and that person would be pulling against it so that would be a two-person way of doing it at least two maybe even three could be doing it that way um, similarly if you're using a bow uh, if you um, if you find it difficult get somebody else to assume that position you know what that position is get them in that position and then you reinforce it you can press down or you can bow or you can do both but you don't necessarily need to be kneeling in that same position you could even do that as three people one person pressing down and one person on each end of the bow um, so there are different methods of doing it and realistically um, unless you're out in the middle of nowhere on your own and you get stranded you're never going to have to do that on your own so if you're going to be out with friends and you're going to choose to use it maybe choose to practice with them and, and do it as a group and um, that would be that was a perfectly feasible way of doing it um, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way um, and also if you do feel that it's something that you find difficult to do and you may have to do it under some circumstances then you know it's the same for somebody who doesn't have a lot of strength or doesn't have a lot of um doesn't have a lot of ability with bow drill make sure you've got some other means of lighting fire on you um because uh that may save your life you know if we're talking about extreme circumstances make sure that you have um, a ferro rod and something to drop sparks onto um, in your pocket or make sure you have a lighter and matches and a ferro rod so that yes you can do bow drill potentially but equally let's not be romantic about it um, if you really really need a fire there are easier ways of lighting a fire than a bow drill and um, one of the things about learning bow drill is it makes all the stages of fire lighting better so you know even if you practice bow drill and you get into a difficult situation you wouldn't then use bow drill necessarily if you had a quicker means of lighting a fire and it's not about cheating it's about what works the more you know the better but clearly um, there are multiple different ways of lighting a fire and if you know it's going to be difficult for you to light fire with a bow drill um, 
you know, there are some people that are much better at it than others, and so, some people that are much more, um, much more capable. Um, they're stronger, they're more practiced, um, they're quicker with their carving, all those sorts of things. Um, but some people are not so good, and you really need to be realistic about what you're likely to come, ag come up against and what you're likely to be able to achieve in their circumstances and prepare yourself appropriately. It's all about being prepared. Um, and yes, you want to be able to prepare yourself in as many ways as possible, but don't get fixated on one technique. It's, and this isn't just aimed at Danny, it's aimed at everybody that's listening to this. Um, aim to have a realistic set of skills that work in the circumstances that you're gonna find yourself in. All right, thanks Danny. Where's the next question? Okay, question from Zoltan Zabo. Great name, Zoltan, love it. Um, hi, Paul. First, thank you and congrats for all the vids, podcasts and articles. You're very welcome. Um, my question is, what animal track would you suggest for a beginner in tracking? Do you have any advice and what is your favorite season and place to track? Any favorite animals? Thank you, Zoltan from Hungary. So there's quite a few questions there and I'll try and be, I'll try and be relatively concise. Um, so uh, easiest season, I mean, you're in Hungary, easiest season to learn, uh, to start to learn to track and understand the behavior of animals through the medium of tracking is in the winter when there is some snow on the ground and you can read the tracks much more easily. Um, you know, for example, here, you may pick up tracks um, at this time of year in some spots, but other places it would be very difficult to pick up tracks and it's harder to follow something and it's harder to pick out exactly what's left it. Whereas in the snow, it's, you've got this perfect medium like sand, you've got this perfect medium potentially that's gonna leave a lot of information. You get the wingtips of birds, you get birds landing and taking off, you get full tracks from foxes, you can see where they've been digging, um, you can see tracks from small animals like weasels and stoats right through to larger animals like you know red deer and elk, um, you can see lynx and foxes and all sorts of uh, lynx and wolves and all sorts of things that you might not necessarily pick up on going through undergrowth um, normally. So you, you're going to get a lot more um, information in a short period of time and you can really start to understand how animals move and that can help you in harder seasons. So I would say get out in the winter, in the snow, even with a light dusting of snow or even just with a hard frost, you're going to pick up a lot more sign um, of animals having moved through an area than you are It maybe in the middle of the summer, in the spring or in the autumn. Um, in terms of particular species, um, deer are always good for tracking. Deer will leave sign most of the year round. They've got quite hard edges to their, uh, to their hooves. And so they're gonna crease things. They're gonna leave quite well-defined footprints. They're gonna leave them in soft vegetation. They're gonna leave it in moss. They're gonna leave it in soft earth and sandy soil. So you stand more chance of following them. You stand more chance of identifying them, both in terms of size and sex and species, um, as well as ascertaining the direction and what they're doing so um, you know if you want to pick on a particular species set if you like I would look at deer and um, if you want really relatively easy conditions I would look in the winter and then just try just go out and see what you can see as well don't necessarily just focus right down just be open-minded open your vision go out see what you can see and one of the key things with tracks and tracking and just noticing more in the woods in general is just be inquisitive um, 
if you see something that catches your eye, they'll just kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's something I might look at. Really make the conscious effort to go, oh, there's something a little bit out of the ordinary over there. I'm gonna make the effort to go over and have a look at that. That inquisitiveness, it really pays dividends because you will see a lot more, um, you'll notice a lot more. We, we tend to filter a lot of stuff out in, in our day-to-day -day lives and you have to kind of remove that filter and be a little bit more like a child because we filter stuff out, as I say, and we tend to be very goal-oriented. We tend to be right, I'm going for a walk from A to B. I'm going for a walk for two hours. I'm going for a walk and I'm gonna be back for five o'clock because that's what time I have to have tea and cake with my wife or whatever it is. Um, just go out for a walk. Don't give yourself time, strict time limits. Feel free to wander. Feel free to change your, um, change your plan and your itinerary within the bounds of being safe and people knowing where you are, of course. But um, feel free to wander a bit more like a child. If you watch the way kids move, they, just, they don't have a particular goal. They just go out and they look at stuff and they're like, oh, this is interesting. And they stand in puddles and they poke at things with sticks and they go and look at things that were brightly colored that catch their eye. You have to be a bit more like that um, rather than going, right, I'm going from here to there and on the way, I'm going to count as many signs as I see. That's not the way to do it because you'll just get stressed and the stressed brain isn't open to what's going on around you. So just be relaxed, go out and see what you can see, follow up, um, be open to opportunities. You might want to go out and look for fox sign, but you find a really good uh, deer trail, um, follow it. Um, just follow what you see. You might not see any fox tracks that day. So that would be my advice and have fun with it. And there's also a great book uh, by Preben and Preben, Preben Dahlstrom and Preben Bang uh, called Animal Tracks and Sign. It doesn't teach you how to track, but it does really help with identification of uh, animal tracks and sign in Northern Europe and Eurasia. That's a book that I'd thoroughly recommend. That's my book recommendation for today. I'll put a link to that in the show notes below this video on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk. All right, next question is from Rick Stratton. Don't know where Rick is, um, which country he's in, but he asks, um, well, first off, he says, the Ask Paul, the Ask Paul Kirtley series is great, and I appreciate all the free information you provide to the outdoors community. Well, you're very welcome, Rick, and I hope it's useful to you and it enhances your outdoor life. That's why I do this. And um, I, I don't really know of another way that I could get this information out in this way as a Efficiently. So it seems to work for everybody. I enjoy doing it and um, it makes me think about what I know and get, get it across to people in a way that's helpful to them and it helps a lot of people. So it's very, very good to do it. Um, and his question is, I would like to know whether you practice bushcraft while hunting season is open and what tips you might have to increase safety during these times. Thanks, Rick. Well, I, I, I'm going to assume that you're in North America somewhere, Rick, be, because of that question. Um, simply because of the preponderance for people to, to make themselves very uh, visible with orange, blaze orange, for example. Um, whereas in um, parts, or certainly in the UK and parts of Europe, um, that isn't necessarily the case. And there's a lot of hunting that goes on in the UK that um, year round. Um, 
there are different seasons for different um, different deer for example which pretty much if you join one onto the other different species and different sexes pretty much goes year round so there's hunting of deer pretty much year round in the in the forests and, and the hills of the UK and then you've got different game bird shooting seasons and that's more with shotguns um, and that tends to be up in the hills um, for grouse and in the forests for pheasant um, but in terms of people using high-powered rifles, there is a lot of deer stalking that goes on. People are controlling foxes as well with high-powered rifles, um, as well as there being some 2-2 uh, shooting of rabbits and, and smaller game pigeons and that sort of thing as well. So um, there's a lot of shooting goes on here. There's a lot of shooting goes on in Scandinavia. I know in Sweden in particular, um, Germany, and there's a lot of hunting goes on there. Um, so they, these are things that go on all the time. Now, um, part and parcel of that are land access rules. I think you need, the basic thing you need to do really is um, obey the rules for, for access. You've got to remember if you're trespassing across a piece of woodland that's privately owned that might be stalked by, pe by people with uh, firearms, they're not going to try and shoot you. And I can't think of any examples where people have inadvertently been shot because generally people, um, certainly in the UK, people who shoot are very, very careful to make sure that what they're shooting at is definitely their prey species. But, um, you know, bullets carry on going for a long while and you do need to think about um, where you're going. Here in Scotland, um, the stag season is just coming to an end, the red stag season. And certainly around this time of year in October, when you walk into areas that are open access um, under the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, there will be a sign often that says, please, could you stick to the trails at this time of year? Because the deer are very sensitive. It's an important time of year for, for stalking for the estates. It's an important time of year for revenue for them um, and for their guests to, to go out stalking. And um, it's also important that you stay within an area that's safe where people know you are. So it works for everybody uh, and you should respect that. So um, my first thing I would say is look into what the local restrictions are at the particular time of year, because they may largely dictate what you can and can't do. And notice I'm not talking specifically about bushcraft here. Bushcraft is something that I, I carry with me wherever I go. It's, it's um, skills and knowledge that I carry with me all the time. It's not an activity that I go out to do. Um, I may use my fire lighting skills while I'm on a canoe trip. I may use my na natural navigation skills while I'm on a ski tour. Um, I may use um, my axe skills while on a winter camping trip on snowshoes and toboggan um, to take down a dead standing tree and split, cut it up and split it up for the stove. Um, I may use um, you know, my uh, skinning and butchery skills to take a deer um, into the component parts for and, and joints for cooking when out on a on a stalking trip so um, these are things that are integrated into my outdoor life it's not an activity that I go and do other than when I'm teaching a course where I'm putting a concentrated um, set of skills in front of people so that they can learn efficiently and effectively 
in a small period of time. So I'm accelerating their learning for them and giving them the benefit of my experience, both in doing things close to home and doing things in, in wild and remote places and bringing that knowledge back to bear and, and tutoring and, and uh, showing people efficient ways of doing things and giving them the benefit of my uh, teaching skills as well and getting stuff across efficiently to people so that they can go away enabled with those skills to use them in the way that uh, that suits their uh, that suits their outdoor life. There was a, a large wasp just came out of the tree stump next to me there, which was quite quite uh, quite uh, interesting. But uh, just it's just flown off. Um, so uh, I think it was a queen. Um, so my point being is that in terms of going to do bushcraft, it's something that I do all the time outdoors. It's something that I do. But in terms of what I do within particular hunting seasons, I'm gonna respect what's going on and other users of the land. And clearly in terms of safety, um, in areas where people are expected to be wearing some sort of orange during the hunting season, if they're in areas where hunting's going on, and you know, I would, I would be wearing some sort of orange blaze on my rucksack, um, and on my person potentially, um, you know, you can wear an orange cap. Um, there are some good caps that are green but have a, a flap that comes up and they're orange on the top. Put a part of an orange survival bag, wrap it around your rucksack so people can see that. Um, that's a good thing to do if you're in areas where people are hunting in a concentrated way over a short period of time. So I'm thinking particularly moose hunting season or elk hunting season. People go a little bit crazy for that sort of thing. Um, and in some parts of the world, uh, I wouldn't be in the woods where people are really going crazy for moose hunting because a lot of hunters end up being shot by other hunters um, because of over exuberance. I don't want to be a hiker in the middle of that. Um, I'll, I'll go somewhere else if I can or just choose to, uh, you know, in those short hunting seasons, um, you know, that may only last a week or two, I'll just stay out of the woods for that period of time. Um, but more generally, just respect what's going on, look into what the local um, people uh, expect from people that are in the woods and, uh, and stick, to those, stick to those traditions and stick to those expectations. All right, next question. Getting through these quite quickly today. And I think this is the last one. Got through more than five today, which is excellent. This is the last one from Andy. And Andy asks about powerless refrigeration. Hi Paul, do you have any tips or tricks for how to keep things cold, meat, etc., when camping for extended periods in the wild? In the absence of any good natural methods, are there any particular bits of kit you would recommend? Many thanks, Andy. Um, so yeah, refrigeration is an issue and you can clearly see why people smoked. Uh, uh, meat in the past to preserve it and I think that's still something that you might want to consider um, in terms of what you take with you in the first place. If you want to take meat for extended periods of time I'd be looking at smoked meat, I'd be looking at making your own jerky um, or biltong. Um, the modern dehydration units that you can get are very good for dehydrating foods and making making them last a lot longer. So when we do longer trips in the winter um, one of my friends um, Ian tends to get a roe deer from a stalker that he knows and he will make a lot of venison uh, jerky which is flavoured in various different ways and we bag that up and, and take it with us and that can be eaten on its own, that can be added into other things so that's a way of taking meat for longer. In the winter clearly you can buy meat and, and just leave it out at the ambient temperature and it will stay pretty cold but in the summer clearly it's an issue where things will become 
uh, rancid or have bacteria growing on them and in them in a relatively short period of time, um, you need to be particularly careful. So I would say if you've got raw meat for any length of time, you need to be cooking it extremely well. So look at boiling things, um, you know, sort of stewing meats rather than just searing them um, to make sure they're thoroughly well cooked. And um, that particularly towards the end of having them out for a long period of time. Look at vacuum packing things. So if you're taking bacon, for example, which, you know, should last a reasonable length of time because it's salted. Um, but once it's sliced and it's been handled a bit, there's always more chance of having bacteria on it. So if you vacuum pack bacon into smaller packs for each day, that's going to last you longer. That's something we do in Canada when we do canoe trips, so that, that's going to last longer and it keeps it contained, it stops it leaking on other things. You can, you can dispose of the packaging, particularly if you're traveling in bear country, you can burn the plastic that's got the blood and the grease on it so that you're not carrying stuff that might be attractive to animals. Um, in terms of keeping other things cold, the old trick of a wet muslin bag is a good one because the evaporation um, will take a lot of heat away and evaporative heat loss is very effective. It's a very effective means of losing heat. It's why we sweat. It's why we can deal with hot temperatures very effectively. It's also why getting cold, getting wet in cold conditions and wet and uh, wet and cold and windy conditions is particularly dangerous for us because we can lose a lot of heat and end up with our core body temperature being very, very low. You can use that knowledge to keep things cold. Um, if you've got them in uh, a waterproof container, you can store things in streams. That's a good way of keeping things cool. Um, you know, you can cool, cool your beers that way as well, but equally you can keep some food cold, cold that way. But a wet muslin bag around things with some bit of air on it to create some evaporative heat loss is a good way of keeping things cool. Keeping things out of the direct sunlight is important. Um, tents can get very hot in, in sunny weather. And so not necessarily, you might think, well, a tent's relatively shady on the inside, but if it's got the sun on the outside, it's gonna get very warm on the inside and that's gonna start you know, almost being like a little oven starting to cook food. Um, one of the things that we use on courses when we're camped out for long periods of time is we just use cool boxes or eskies, um, if you wanna call them that way. And the better quality those boxes, the longer you're gonna keep things cold for. And if you can be organized so that you're not opening and closing um, one uh, that you don't need to, then you're gonna keep that cold air in there. So maybe have um, one box that's gonna have all the food that you need in it for, the, for a certain number of days and have another box that's not gonna be opened uh, until you finish that first box. And you might even pack some ice in that. Um, and that ice will melt over time, but that's gonna help keep things cold. Um, and so that's gonna allow you to keep fresh food for longer. Even if you're in a vehicle-based trip, you can do that. And clearly if you're doing a serious vehicle-based trip, you might look at getting a dual battery system and getting a second fridge, uh, a set of fridge in the back, running off that dual battery system the whole time. Um, you know, particularly if you're traveling in hot countries, you're traveling in Africa or traveling, you know, it's a fairly standard thing for people to do in Australia, have a fridge in the back of the, uh, the 4x4 and have a dual battery system on the vehicle so you're not running the main battery down by running the fridge. That's, a, that's something you can do as well. So it depends on where you're going, how long you're going for. There are some simple tricks with evaporation you can use, keeping it out of the sunlight, um, being organized, um, 
preserving some food before you go, preparing food, um, dehydrating it is another good way of extending um, the t having the same type of food but for longer. And then if you're going for a lot longer, then I'd be looking at getting some more specialist, certainly getting some high quality um, cool boxes or eskies, and then move on to maybe if you're doing a vehicle-based trip, getting a, a, a fridge on a dual battery system in the back of the vehicle. And that's my uh, general advice. So hopefully that's useful to you, Andy. Thanks for the questions. That brings us to the end of episode 13 of Ask Paul Kirtley. I did think about leaving this until uh, Halloween um, in terms of putting it out, but I thought um, people seem to be enjoying the fact that these are coming out every week and it'd be a bit unfair just, just for the sake of having something out on Halloween um, to, to wait uh, an extra week to put it out. So thanks for your um, subscription to these. If you're watching on YouTube, thanks for listening. If you're listening on SoundCloud or elsewhere to the podcast and thanks for watching if you're watching this on my blog please leave a comment and let me know what you think um, i'm not getting any questions on instagram or twitter at the moment please keep them coming um, keep them nice and short they're really good I, I know i've got a couple to answer on instagram but i've not seen any come in for a number of weeks that seems to have died right off keep the speak pipe questions coming and please share this video wherever you're watching this the link that's at the top of the page where you're watching this please share it with um, relevant communities whether it's a forum whether it's a, a page on facebook so that other people can get the benefit of this series as well i'm getting loads of compliments about this people are uh, really enjoying this format and really enjoying getting the answers to their questions so if you could share this with other like-minded people that would really help me out and it will help you out as well because i'll get more questions and hopefully they're relevant questions for you as well if you're sharing with like-minded people and that means that you get more information out of me as well so thanks again for watching and i will see you on the next episode take care bye